Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, the comics podcast for people who are always excited about the X-Men as a metaphor for all kinds of political topics. And joining us today is a guest who herself is an X-Men expert and writer. Um, this is Ilana Levin hosting for you today. And joining me as my guest is Christina Strain. Uh, she's the writer of the New Generation X series for Marvel Comics. Strain was born and raised right outside an army base in Seoul, South Korea, where she devoured comics and manga, as good nerds do. She began her career as a colorist working at CrossGen and later on Marvel's beloved Runaway series. At 32, Christina retired from coloring to go to the American Film Institute for a degree in screenwriting, and at 34, she landed a staff job writing job on season two of the sci-fi network show The Magicians. She's been writing ever since, and uh, she's joining us today. Hello, Christina. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have connected. Um, I have to say, I found out about this comic on Tumblr. Um, it's definitely like, you know, I think like a lot of X-Men titles got announced since around the same time. And, uh, the, the, I think the first thing I really saw that made me notice this comic, cause I, I wasn't really familiar with your, your work prior you know, to this was, um, I saw uh, a couple pages of the student interactions between Quentin choir and the other students posted on Tumblr. And I said, yeah. This this is a comic for people who have similar priorities to me, like to me, when it comes to reading an X Men title. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I was really glad, really glad to see it. Um, uh, I guess we should start talking a little bit about how you got your start in comics. You originally came in as a colorist. Uh, how did how did that um, how did you come to that particular focus of comics art? Yeah, it was it was crazy. Like I said, I you know I grew up in Asia reading uh, lots of manga and as many American comics as I could, but primarily manga. So like when I was a kid, I drew, I inked, I colored, I did everything. I wrote. Um, but then when I moved to the states uh, for college, I ended up making friends with the um, my my new American friends uh, who were super into American comics, and they explained to me how. American comics were made at DC and Marvel, which is completely different from the way comics are made in Asia. So I had this kind of like year where I kind of felt out what job I liked the most. And I ended up falling on colorist because I had a very manga skewed penciling style. And I was like, that's not cutting it here in the States in the year of our Lord, 2013 or or 2003. (laughs) Oh my God. Sorry. But um, so I just started coloring and I really, really liked it. By the time I graduated from college, I had gone to three years worth of conventions with portfolios that were very focused on coloring. And I had made enough connections that I ended up landing a job at CrossGen when I was 22. So that was my entry into comics. I basically just spent my four years at college getting a graphic degree, a graphic design degree. And then at night coloring, because I just was like, I just want to color comics for a living. I mean, I can get this degree, but I, I know what I want to do. So I did that and just, slow and steady chipped away at it until I got a job. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, you were working <laughs> coloring comics at Marvel when you were very young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I like, I, I was very, I was really lucky. And those connections that people make at conventions are really important. Like my job at CrossGen was so short and ill-fated. Uh, I mean, it was three months. I was there for three months. I had like a lease on an apartment. I was freaking out because I was 22 and on my own for the first time, you know, in a state where none of my family was because I lived in Florida at the time. And 
I was able to basically contact Eric Ko at Udon, who I had become friends with at conventions and be like, hey, you and I have hung out and you know that I'm a colorist. I don't know that you've ever seen my work. I'm going to send you my portfolio. And he liked it. And he was actually the one who connected me to uh, Marvel. And it was through Udon that I got my job on Runaways. So, like, Oh, wow. Yeah, like it is when they say it's a world of who you know, a lot of the times what they really mean is like just don't be a jerk and be really nice to people because you never know when you're going to need to ask somebody for help. Um, Mm. And in that case, like it it worked beautifully for us because it landed me a job at a place that I ended up working for 10 years. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, um, I I feel like there's such a, a churn of people coming in and out of comics a lot of the time. Um, yeah. and you were really able to have a home at Marvel for for a long time. Um, yeah, I mean, Runaways. I'm an yeah. exclusive colorist for Marvel. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, yeah, I I made myself a home, and I just didn't leave. Any any tips on that other than also being a good person and being good at your job? <laughs> oh, it is so tricky because the, the, I feel like the market today is so different than it was when I was younger. Like for one thing, I definitely think it's a lot harder to make a living doing comics now exclusively um, because rates have dropped so drastically. But the important thing is like when it comes to breaking in, the biggest thing is you have to one be persistent because like, they're not kidding when they say it's a matter of, you know, um, talent, luck and persistence. Persistence. I think out of all three of those is the most important. You need to be very sound like, this is what I want to do. I'm not screwing around. You have to go to conventions. You have to meet people. You have to be really nice. You have to put in the FaceTime. You have to put in the work, too. Be very, very open to receiving um, not just, like, critiques, but, like, collaboration. Because if let's say you're a colorist or you're an inker. You're immediately going to have to work with other people because you need to work on somebody else's art. If you hear from that artist or editors or anybody that you are asking for a critique, like, what do you think of this, especially creators that you're working with? Like, listen to them. Like, don't be defensive about how you feel about what you've done. Like, the number one thing that I hear from people is, like, I put so much time into this. It has to be good. And that's not necessarily true. So you have to be open to understanding where you're, you know, you have room for improvement. And then you need to take that and do it. Um, those would be my two big things. Oh, and then the third thing I would say is your portfolio it has to be short, concise, and, like, the best thing, the best things you've ever done. Like, every portfolio I ever took to a convention back when I was trying to break in was five pieces max. I did not show more than that. Because if it's too much, they don't have time to talk about it. And if it's too little, you know, it's like, well, have you done enough? So, like, five seems to be a pretty sweet number when you're first trying to break in. You put in a few sequential pages and then a pin up here, and you're pretty good to go. That's such valuable information. Thank you. I know a lot of our listeners will be appreciating that. Um, yeah. I mean, so working on Runaways, which is really like one of the most beloved Marvel series of the past oh. couple decades. Um, yeah. Well, like what, what was your experience doing color specifically for, for that book? Um, it definitely had a different visual look and feel than some of the other titles that were out at the time. Yeah, it was such a special treat. Runaways might have spoiled me for everything else, actually. Um, Everybody who worked on it was so lovely. Brian was just, I mean, you'll hear a ton of people talk about how Brian Vaughn is like this really nice guy. They're not kidding. He is. He's 
he's available when you need him to be. If you have questions, he answers right away. He always has feedback to give good. And if he has like something that he wants, he'll say it, which is important because we can't read writers' minds. Um, <laughs> and then Adrian was just the, like Adrian and Craig, when it comes to art, we're just so lovely to work with Adrian in particular. Um, so much of the way that book is, is just Adrian and how different he is as a human being. Like we, when I came in, like I was, I was the second colorist on Runaways. I came in on issue eight. He sat down with me and immediately was like, Hey, so here's the thing. People don't wear every color in the rainbow. Everyone has a color palette that they like to wear because these are the colors they think look good on them. I want to sit down with you and come up with a palette for every kid. And I was like, oh, you're not screwing around. <laughs> you're, you're, really, you're really amazing. Uh, let's do this. And it was really cool. He was, like, super open for collaboration. Like, part of the reason that Molly has animal hats has everything to do with um, I'm a big dork who had animal hats when I was in my early 20s. So I remember telling him, like, after she had the pom-poms, I was like, what if you put her in, like, a really cute animal hat? And he was like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, I got a bunch. And he was like, oh, yeah, we're doing that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's it was amazing. Awesome. That's yeah. iconic. No, like, that's an iconic character thing. I, I, I really I love comics that understand clothing as an aspect of characterization. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the original Runaway stuff is really a series that understood and values that. And I love that your personal animal hat situation informed what became an iconic character look yeah. for Molly. Wow. It really, it really was like... That, that's what it was like to work with those guys. Like they were so hardcore, like Adrian and Brian were both were like, we don't, we don't want to do costumes. So Adrian was like, we, we're not going to have to do costumes. We're going to make sure every one of these kids looks different. Like, we're just, that's going to mm-hmm. be it. Because in real life, people have a fashion aesthetic and we're going to make sure that they each have one. Um, and it's, it's details like that that I think I've carried on in my career, just the attention to an individual character's details, like things that you might not necessarily um, think about in the grind that is working in comics. But it, it, it does so much to bring a book to life to take the extra bit of time to ask yourself, like, who is this person outside of the words that come out of their mouth? Great. Yeah, and I, I think it's really something that is overlooked by a lot of artists, and I'm I, something I really do value in, in, in a comic. Um, I think, like, when people don't pay attention to clothes, it's because they don't think other people should pay attention to clothing. But in reality, like, comics are a visual medium, and we all make choices yeah. in what we wear, you know? Yeah, um, and the other thing that's difficult is when pencilers are switching books so frequently – a lot of the times they don't have the chance to sit down and make those decisions, especially on mm. books that have been around for so long. One of the things that we had with Runaways that was so special was that we were at the beginning of it. You know, we were making these decisions from the get-go. So it wasn't like we were coming into, you know, Thor 609, you know, like this is, which is a, an issue I colored, by the way. So yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. There are times where an artist will be, you know, six issues on this, six issues on that. And like the crunch can be so tight that they don't, they don't feel like they have the bandwidth to do that. And on top of that, if it's not established before them, it's difficult for them to feel like they can do it because either it'll go against the book or two, like it's just a lot of work to put into a book that you might not be working on in three months. Yeah, I would love there really to be character style guides for, I mean, I know yeah. particular artists and writers do this, and I know particular editors do this, but it would be great to see that just become the norm, really, 
in any of these, right. you know, big ongoing series. Yeah. I would, I mean, same. I like personally, everything that I've worked on has that. Um, it's not always visible, but like even with Gen X, like I took the, you know, I talked to the penciler and the colorist and there was a style guide that I put together um, just Ooh. like in my head to clearly explain, because Emil Carr and I had gone back and forth on uh, style sometime because I was trying to help define who these, these kids were through their fashion. Cause it's, you know, it's what I came up with with runaways. So like I found a lot of photo reference for him where I was just like, these are the types of clothes that I see Roxy wearing. This is the type of thing that I see Quentin wearing. This is the type of stuff that I see Benjamin wearing. And then like off of that, he went and did his own thing, which was really cool. I mean, and those are all things that really worked in the comic for me. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk a bit about Generation X in terms of the characters' looks. I mean, you uh, were able to come in and bring in at least one character that you're the yeah. creator of uh, entirely. And you, you, well, I mean, you, I don't want to get too ahead of myself in terms of like the amazing cast here because you definitely pulled together some of my favorite young mutants out there. But um, so like you had, I mean, for real, like uh, so looking at this, you assembled a team. Of characters, uh, I, so how did how did uh, the Generation X comic c- come to be? Like you you doing a new volume of it that started I guess about a year ago. Yeah, well, technically I think it was a little over a year and a half ago because when um, when Resurrection was first you know conceptualized, basically uh, it was the summer of 2016. So I was in the middle of Magician season two. I had been contacted my, by my editor who asked me if I was interested. So I had time to come up with a, like a loose pitch and then an actual pitch document that was like full in depth. So there was like a lot of groundwork done ahead of time. And then I, again, I was already working um, a job that was taking up a huge amount of my time um, and was my first priority. So it took a little bit of time to kind of get started, but the first thing Daniel said to me was like, do you want to do a team book? And I was like, do I? that's all I want to do I feel like my career at Marvel was basically me just trying to maneuver onto teen books because all I wanted to do was like teen superhero soap opera books Um, that was like my number one interest Um, so when he said that I was just like immediately into it and we just kind of talked about loose ideas and he mentioned Gen X and I like had to sit on it for a bit because my first thought was like I can't I can't write those kids as teens anymore. The book happened forever ago. And regardless of what Marvel continuity says their ages, my first thought is like the amount of experiences that they've gone through. It just, it's a disservice to like people than they were when they they were in the original book. So my whole thing was, I was just like, I want to do something with different characters and I want to assemble kind of the, as many of the forgotten kids as possible and, there was a bit of an, like, it wasn't like a super negotiation or anything. Um, but Daniel definitely was like, you need to make sure anybody wants to buy this book, Christina, you got to put people in it that people want to pay to buy, you know, read about. Oh. And immediately I was like, it, but that's, it, that is a sad truth. But immediately I was like, the first kid that I will pick is an original Gen X there, Jubilee. Cause I think that if you're going to do generation X, you uh-huh. need at least one character. And for uh-huh. her, since she has a kid, I was like her teaching new, like a new, you know, um, generation of kids, how to be like, or how not to be X-Men. 
uh, works for me. So she, he was like, yeah, she's an A-lister. And then like, I pitched a bunch of characters, including Quentin Quire. And he was like, okay, with Jubilee and Quentin, I think we can do this. So yeah, it was just basically, I had made this loose pitch saying, I want to write a book about uh, mostly populated by quote unquote useless X-Men. And I want it to be a book about like being a misfit amongst misfits because you know, growing up reading these books, they meant so much to me because, like, nerds read comics and I was a nerd. And these books made me feel like that was okay. Like, they found their their people and they excelled within the X-Men. And I think that nowadays, you know, superhero comics are, like, superheroes in general are pretty cool. And comics recently, to me, just feel so much like, all of these characters are so cool. Let's go punch things. And I just wanted to tell a story that made, that brought me back to high school where I was like, I'm going to take a bunch of losers and tell them it's okay. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. well, yeah. um, I mean, that's the thing. Like, this is definitely a series that's an inheritor of a couple of different important X-Men themes. Like in the sense yeah. that you have the characters from new, from generation X in here yeah. in sort of leadership and paternal and maternal positions, you know, you're continuing that story by like handing it off to the new generation, but it's also yes. sort of the, the heir to special class and Grant Morrison's. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. No, that is exactly what it is. Like there is just, except I, I definitely am not nearly as, as down on life as Grant. <laughs> <laughs> I think I probably have a slightly more hopeful outlook on the special class, especially since I don't have, you know, characters that are made of gas and then I pop their costume and then they die because they dissipate. None of that here. Um, (laughs) But yeah, no, exactly. And on top of that, like there are themes in within X-Men that I think that like, especially in the eighties and the nineties, mostly in the nineties, I think there's a lot of like comment on like social commentary that was, that was about acceptance that made me feel better about life and I just needed to go back there. <laughs> I just had like, I just needed to be like, you know what? It's okay. If you like a boy, you are totally normal. We're going to write it like that. You know what? It's okay. If you have all this trauma that you like, don't want to deal with, I'm going to show you it's okay to go to therapy. You know what? It's okay that you, you're an adult with a kid and you feel like a child. I'm going through that right now. We're going to get through this. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I wanted to do all of those things in this book, and uh, I hope I did. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I, it, it really does. I mean, the, the other thing that I think that your book does that is like a, a very important X-Men thing that is essential to making an X-Men book work is that you have, you know, interpersonal relationships driving yeah. the story, and, like, people's feelings for each other specifically are what motivate them Um I mean, you even, you, you created a new character, Nathaniel Carver, who is a really great character. I love the style that you used on him and also has a rogue uh, type challenge of like not wanting people. In his case, he doesn't want people to touch him because of how his powers work. So yeah. I was like, oh, you brought back the classic rogue. I can't be touched, but I want to touch you because I'm a human and have feelings dynamic in a new and interesting way. And it's a boy and he's gay. And that's really neat. So, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your process in developing Nathaniel Carver. I mean, I think he's the only character that you invented whole cloth, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah. Well, there is actually one other character that I created whole cloth, and that was the Rat King, but he doesn't matter. Ah, yeah. (laughs) 
Yes. But yeah, no. He was sounding defeated, but <laughs> I was like, I kept getting turned I kept getting told you can't use that villain, you can't use that villain, you can't use that villain. And I was like, I need a very specific villain. I'm just gonna make one up. Um it, Nathaniel was like super near and dear to my heart because he is based on uh my editor who contacted me to to do this. Uh he was he's based on Daniel Ketchum. And I was very very transparent about that. I mean, his name's Nathaniel. He's based on Daniel. I am that person. Um, but like, <laughs> I love him. He's, he's an adopted Korean dude who's an out gay man. I have known him for 10 years. I am half Korean. Like, I just basically made our child and put him in the X universe. Um, and that is who he is. And for me, like, so much of what I put into Nathaniel, I think – it's just what the X-Men did for me. Like it gave me a place to feel like I was okay. And I did that in his external story. Um, it's funny. Cause it's a weird thing to unpack. Cause there's so much that I put into him. Cause he's the one character that I created, but like, you know, I grew up working for Marvel um, with several gay editors who made me feel really, you know, who basically took care of me when I was coming up and I wrote a story that I felt like some of them definitely wanted to see and never got to do. And oh, that was wow, like yeah. one of my, yeah, that was a big thing for me that I was like, this is, I will fight for this. I want this. This is very important to me that we do this because like all of the editors that came before me, stories that we couldn't tell or stories that were maybe not going to get approved. I was like, we're going to fucking do this story. Excuse my language. Sorry. We're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, it's, you know, it's, it's for them um, and for me. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you had multiple LGBTQ characters in the comic, like yeah. canon and um, some that that fans have strongly held beliefs with respect to as well. <laughs> and, um, I mean, like, yeah, like, sort of how do you actually, yeah, I don't know, can you answer the question? Like, how do you juggle writing car- canonically LGBTQ characters with characters for whom there are a lot of fans with strong feelings with respect to their gender or sexual um, uh, orientation? For me, yeah, it was, it was pretty easy for me just because like, I've actually uh, like, I, I go to Outfest every year. I've seen a lot of LGBT storytelling, you know, um, again, like I had multiple gay editors and we've had multiple conversations about storytelling for queer characters and our opinions on things. Um, one of the things like, Aside from Nathaniel and Benjamin being a gay romance where there's no question as to, like, either of the characters, like, what their sexuality is. It is just two kids that like each other and, it, you know, their emotional baggage gets in the way. That was easy for me to do. Like, I knew that. I was like, Marvel does coming out stories so frequently. We're not going to do that. Then with Roxy, it was the polar opposite where I felt like the last series of stories that were done with her were so much of her trying to figure out what her sexuality was that what I wanted to do was to make her a character that was more than just her, you know, her orientation. Like I didn't want it to, her to be a queer character who was stuck in uh, queer storytelling. So mm-hmm. for me, that's what it was. And then for Quentin, and I've, I've mentioned this in a podcast before, I actually had no idea that a lot of people had their opinions about his sexuality being anything other than straight. Cause I like, I've read his stuff and I've, with Quentin, it's funny, I don't really think about him and his romances so much because I had a hard time moving past 
his main issue, which was family. So it never, like from the very beginning, the thing I knew I was going to do with him was to give him a deep friendship with Benjamin Deeds because Benjamin Deeds is the most empathetic character, not just in our bunch, but potentially in the young Marvel like cast. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to give Quentin a brother. So I think when everybody started tweeting at me and going like, Hey, he's going to be rooming with a gay character. You're going to make him buy, you're going to like confirm that he's bi or pan. Or, and I was just like, Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. But that is not the story I'm setting up to tell. And I'm just going to stick with that because I don't think Quentin needs a romance. I think Quentin needs to like understand what he needs is a group of people. He can depend on like family. He needs to pick his family. So I just kind of like, for those characters, that was what I set out to do. Um, And I stuck with it from the very beginning. And I think because um, this isn't my first queer story, uh, it was easier for me to navigate than some people. That's really, no, that's, that's, that's really, that's really great. Really helped lots of different characters and so many believable teenage interactions as well. Um, I think that the scenes dealing with um, iBoy and uh, nature, nature Girl powers, yeah, were were really much more like thought out and deliberate than I'd seen in a, a, a long time. And like, I really enjoyed seeing those two characters interact with each other. Thank you. Yeah, I I just thought that there were there were tracks laid for them in uh, previous books, but as is the case with a lot of teams, there are just characters that kind of fall to the wayside that they just don't get their moment. And one of the things that I set out to do with Generation X is I wanted to make sure that every single one of these kids, because I picked them because they weren't getting much spotlight time, at least had a little bit of that. So Mm -hmm. I spent a ton of time reading what existed already with these characters to kind of immediately pluck as a reader, what I thought were unexplored terror, like, you know, like, Nature Girl and iBoy have had exchanges and they've been cute. And to me, they read like he's got a crush on her, but she never responds. So yeah. I need to give her a voice. How would she respond to this? She's clearly not into him in the previous, you know, in the previous versions of the, uh, their interactions that I've seen. What would I have to do to get her potentially more interested in him? Because one of the things that I find really compelling about the two of them that worked for me right off the bat was she doesn't really understand people. And he should, like, his power is that, you know, his eyes give him the ability to see so much. He sees movement before other people do. He sees emotion. He can read people. But she's not your typical person. So I could see him being completely drawn to her because she's not easy to read. So she is a lot more curious to him. So, like, I was like, if you use that off of each other, you know, they're very opposites. And they can find each other curious because he's trying to understand her in a way that no other human has ever bothered to spend you know, time doing with Lynn. So she finds that very interesting that he is listening to her and he is genuinely trying to understand her. So she starts to put the investment in him. So it's just things like that where like, I'll read something and I'll catch something and I'll start to ask myself questions and it all starts to connect. But I do genuinely think that like for this book and everything that I write, my whole thought process is always like, it's very easy to do a deus ex machina and just have things happen it's much more important to me that they need to happen for a character's sake. So like, you know, I, I boy doesn't just want to hang out with nature girl because she's there. He wants to hang out with her because she is foreign to him. You know, she wants to hang out with Trevor because 
he is porn to her. It's stuff like that that I like just always think about when I'm writing. And I think that like with X-Men in particular, like all of these characters lend themselves to that. So it's fun. It's like a puzzle. Yeah. I mean, just, the, the 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 focus and the team building with the relationships was so was so important for me. You know, you mentioned like not wanting to do a coming out story around bullying because that had been sort of everything else that had been done with her already. But I thought I think yeah. that you, you do sort of touch on the question of being her being someone who is obviously a mutant who nobody would ever confuse with being a non superpowered individual of sorts. And she talks about like how one of the reasons she wanted to, you know, to join the X Men was because she was tired of standing out in some of those ways. So I, I do think that, you know, like she, she's also a female character with short hair yeah. who's a lesbian, right? So like, yeah. I think the questions of, of passing that she deals with are, are still sort of relevant to that story. It's just that you've taken it to be more than the obvious stuff that we've yeah. already tried a million times, you know? Exactly. Yeah. My big thing is that like she, her being a lesbian is definitely a huge part of who she is because, you know, that's who she is. My biggest thing, I think, has just been, like, it's, like, the overt, uh, like, conflict that just gets beaten over the head over and over again. And I'm just, like, there's got to be more depth to this. There's got to be something else. Like, sure. You know, like, any of the queer characters, there's going to be a- any story that you tell with them, there's going to be a queerness about it. But it doesn't always have to be, like, you know, oh, I like somebody and I don't know if they're going to like me back because... I, you know, I'm a lesbian and I don't know how to be one. You know, it, it can be about something else. It can be like, I like this guy, like with Benjamin and Nathaniel, I like this guy, mm-hmm. but I have like the most amount of self-doubt ever because I just don't like, this guy said this thing to me a few years ago and I already had low self-esteem and now I have terrible, like it, you can go there or, you know, this guy, I like him a lot, but you know, I have a real issue with intimacy and I don't know how to handle that. There's ways to go about it that isn't just, this you know like I have to like come out or I have to be comfortable with my sexuality and I think especially nowadays in 2000 and you know 17 2018 kids are more comfortable with who they are at an earlier age and stories where they are just like any anyone else and they've got other issues are so important to show them because like it's not just about coming out anymore you know it's about everything Mm -hmm. around it Yes, yeah, totally. And sometimes things around it involve supervillains at an auction. Yeah, I, I had <laughs> so much fun with that issue. Like, how do you develop which supervillains are going to make an appearance in a crowd scene and what kind of fights they're going to have with each other? Like, I, you know, when you have this big crowd scene issues, like, are, you, are, you, are you sort of telling the artist, like, here's the characters I want to see in the background? Or, or how, does that, how is that built? So that auction was the most amount of anxiety I had pre-Quentin and Jubilee, like their arc at the very end. I kept pitching to Marvel various villains that could be this auction. Like I I pitched the plot and the story. And I was like, you know, this is going to be a story where Quentin, not thinking, drags them to this auction and they realize there's a thing that they have to get. And we're going to show Benjamin being, you know, this qualified mutant, we're going to give him like a little successful story before we tear him down again. And I was like, I want to use Madame Mask. And they were like, no. And I just like started going down all this list of people that I wanted to use. And they were like, they're all in other books, so they're unavailable. And I, and I just wrote Marvel. I was like, listen, 
we're running out of time. I need you to give me a list. Just give me a list of villains I can use. So they gave me a list of villains I could use. And I literally went through that list and asked myself, which one do I need to make the one that I need to steal the thing from? Because I wrote a heist episode for Magician, so I had this, like, loose kind of structure that I knew I was going to do for this heist. And I just asked myself, like, who needs to be this, 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 and this? Like, the only villain that I, was, I had approved before I asked him to give me a list was Cade Kilgore. <laughs> and so everybody else was just like, who can I use? And then, like, it was really fun because then I, like, got to populate this thing with all of these villains that were available to me. And I was able to utilize them as best I could, you know. I was like, some of these guys are only going to be in one or two panels. Let's do it. Let's, like, what can we do to make it really fun? Um, with all these guys that I have with me. And I, like, I'm glad I did that. I was like, I wish I had thought of asking Marvel which villains are available to me sooner, because I think it's a lot easier to just go, okay, oh, that one's a fun one. Let's do that. <laughs> then just sadly, like, banging my head on a desk going, I got rejected for a fourth time. So, yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. But, yeah, I mean, just, I love I loved seeing, like, you Oblet making an appearance and getting referenced Mandrill. Yeah. Like using his yeah. particular powers, to fend, like using the Fenris twins' powers. It's very well constructed and hilarious. Thank you. Yeah, no, the Fenris twins, I just was like, oh, wait, I can use the Fenris twins? Ooh, twin stuff is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is my editor was like, girl, you need to scale it back. And I was like, but they're gross. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I didn't make this up. This is the origin story. I. Exactly. And, and Quicken totally lampshades that so beautifully when he has this, he has a joke about like exactly how she came to be that it just felt like, yep, that's the editor speaking, but the editor is Quentin Quire. It makes perfect sense. So it, it was so much fun. Cause I just was like, dude, I didn't write this stuff. <laughs> I just, you know, I was playing off of what was written. It's great. So yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and for all of you future writers out there, don't be scared to ask who's available. Cause sometimes it's a lot, it's like shopping instead of, you know, it, it like, it's like online dating only without the pain. <laughs> Speaking of online dating, I appreciated the sex education scene that you had oh. uh, with Duke teaching the class, everyone's favorite yeah. sentient green potato. Um, and people talking about phenomena of mutant chasers. Um, yeah, so some of that was actually an homage to an issue Christoph Gage had written where Chamber was teaching that class. Yes. <laughs> I remember that. I had so much fun writing this book. I had so much fun. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that like, little uh, online dating comment that Roxy makes about, like, the mutant fetishists, I was like, that's real life, man. I'm Asian. Like, <laughs> that's a thing. Yeah, I was, like, thinking, okay, I'm, thank you for spelling that out. I had expected that it had something to do with it. Um, but, yeah, that was an amazing amazing scene in reference and I love how they talk about how self-confident and attractive dupe is because they just appreciate people talking about characters that are really different and like explaining the different ways that people can perceive them you know yes and on top of that dupe knows dupe sexy so if anybody's going to tell them you know don't be embarrassed about your potato body it's a dupe (laughs) oh my god Um, another so, you know, I, I'm particularly drawn to superhero comics that have casts that are not the, the most famous characters. Um, 
I find them to be more interesting and more creative. I think there's more room for experimentation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, is that something that you feel particularly? I mean, I know we talked about it a bit in terms of outsiders, but is there something just in general that appeals about writing teams that are not the obvious, not the obvious players? Oh yeah, no, totally. Every every pitch I've ever given to Marvel has been like kind of a weird, off the wall, bonkers idea. I personally like. I have always identified with outsiders. I mean, I'm a half Asian kid who grew up right outside a military base surrounded by full Koreans. Like I have, Mm -hmm. you know, I was, I grew up on an army base. I was an air force brat. My parents got divorced. So I never actually moved around as much as other military kids. So I was like one of the few kids that stayed at the same military school my entire time. Like, I moved to the States. I'm a U.S. citizen who moved to the States when she was 18. Like I'm, I am, Mm a very weird person because my experiences are not particularly common. I had a very unique upbringing. So I always prefer writing outsider characters because I have not just an empathy and sympathy for them. I just, like, they, they are the people that I love. Like I have just so much love for kids who are on the outskirts who need to figure out who they are, who need to find their own family. I mean, this is part of the reason that X-Men means so much to me. Um, it's just outsider stories are my favorite stories. And teenagers are, like, nobody feels like an outsider like a teenager does. So it's just a combination of all the things that I really love. That's fabulous. Um, and, and like I said, like, I think, like, the fandom that uncovered this for me really was like stumbling it uh, across it on like Tumblr, which is like the land of queer teens, basically. So I hope. Yeah. 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 I really hope that like it can sort of continue to grow in terms of people's awareness of the series in that space and others like it. Oh, that would be amazing. Like I definitely hope, and I got to say, like, I've actually I've gotten a lot of really nice notes from a ton of people. So it's definitely been reaching um, a few kids that I was hoping it would reach. And even adults, like, I've gotten, like, when it was announced that it was canceled, I was genuinely shocked because, I mean, I've seen my numbers. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not unaware of uh, what our sales numbers were. And it didn't perform as well as anybody wanted. We got, uh, it was supposed to be a 16-issue run that got cut down to 12. And, um I was just really surprised when we got canceled at the outpouring of love that I received. Um, and not just me, like my whole team, the whole like the milk car, my editors, like my colorist, Felipe, who's amazing. Um, you know, oh, my letter or Clayton. Did you like yeah, get to decide what it. colorist you had to make sure that they were awesome because you had high standards because you're a colorist? Yeah. And I got to thank Matt Wilson because Matt Wilson is the one who suggested Felipe to me. So like, cause I reached out to Matt cause I was like, dude, I have been out of the game for a while and everybody that I knew as quote unquote upcoming when I was like still working is now expensive and I need a newer colorist. Who do you recommend? And he recommended a few people, including Felipe. And I just went to my editor and I was like, I want this guy. This, his colors on Luther Strode are incredible. I want him. So like, ah, that's where I came from. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was very pleased when we hired him. So, and he's been great. And I, I got to say like just, every yeah. single person on this team has been amazing. Like they've been fantastic. This is a highly pink, like, there's more pink in this comic than I think in any other comic. Oh, I love pink. <laughs> I love that color so much. Is that, like, yeah. something that you, you led with? Is that something no, that you led with? No, 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 no. 
No, I think I just like colorists who use a lot, a lot of pink because he used a lot of pink in Luther Strode too. And another colorist that I really like, uh, John Rausch uses a lot of pink. And I think that like I just like Matt Wilson uses a lot of pink. I think I just like people mm-hmm. who use pink. <laughs> it's a good color. It's a co- like a friend of mine who was a fashion designer um, used to say that uh, pink will be the color of the revolution. So, yeah, they're right. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of fashion. Can I buy a Holiday in Genosha t-shirt like Quentin Quires? I'm pretty sure you can. I think, I don't think that, I think that t-shirt might have been used before. My friend Paul actually helped me with that because I was like burnt out one night. I hadn't slept. Like, it was a last minute me going, oh, fuck, I need to give, oh, excuse me, what you I need to give Quentin Please, you um, a shirt. And my friend Paul, hey, Paul, I'm calling out to you. My friend Paul Kruger, like, helped me come up with that because I was just like, dude, I'm so tired. <laughs> but I think that I've seen the Holiday in Genosha online. So if you Google it, I think there was somebody out there selling that shirt and you should buy it from them. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't look like a Dick Kennedy's shirt, the one that they're selling, or, like, as cool as Yeah. But that's okay. I'll deal. I'll deal. Hey, um, somebody out there with yeah. an Etsy shop, make it happen. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so, so yeah, so, you, you know, honestly, I just have to say, like, I think that comics that, like yours, are going to do really, really great in trade. And I look well, forward you. to, you know, hopefully seeing a resurgence of folks, you know, buying that one. When is the trade out, you know? Uh, I think this, the first one's out. The second one, I want to say, comes out this month sometime. I'm, I'm going to see 2E2 at the beginning of April, and I know it comes out before then. So it's cool. sometime yeah, this month. the second, yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Thank you. So um, in, in, in between all these things, you've been making a transition to television. And I, yes. I, I've heard great things about The Magician. I have not watched it yet, but all my friends love it. So they put together some questions for me to ask awesome. you about The Magicians. Um, although, actually, I first should ask, how did you come to write for The Magicians? So, oh, my God. Yeah, my... Listen, I have led the 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 luckiest life ever. <laughs> I am so I love my life. Um, so I retired from comics and I went to the American Film Institute. And when I got there, you know, I was 32. Most of my classmates were younger than me. I just was like, I have an express. My, my teacher of mine has an expression. He's like, I was a mercenary, and I'm like, to a certain extent, I was very mercenary about my time there. I was like, I bought myself two years to write. I'm gonna write like crazy. Mm. So the last, one of the last things I did when I was at AFI in my second year, because it's a two-year program, I took a webcomic I wrote while I was still working at Marvel called The Fox Sister, which is um, this period piece that takes place in Korea about this girl whose family is killed by a nine-tailed fox demon called a kumiho when she's very young and how as a 19 year old you know now she's an adult she's going to go out and find it and kill it and get revenge for her dead family so i took that web comic and i just was like if i were to adapt this to make it a cw show i'd have something to write and i did that like i knew the comic well enough and i saw it as kind of almost a i was learning and adaptation at the same time, which was really nice. So I wrote a pilot of it and it came out pretty well. Um, and so at the end of my second year, uh, we had this thing called pitch fest. AFI does it for all the screenwriters where you basically have this sit down kind of like, like speed dating round with a bunch of producers and agents and managers. And at that thing, because of Fox sister, like 
I had a few managers who were interested in reading it too, who were interested in repping me and like by like the November of after I graduated, I had a manager and by the February after I graduated, I was staffed on the magician with that pilot. So yeah, no, it was crazy. I wrote a web comic while I was at Marvel. I wrote a pilot based off the web comic while I was at grad school. And then because of my history, like working in comics and the pilot, um, I guess being pretty good, I got a representation and then the pilot got me my job. That's fabulous. It's insane. Is this something that you think is going to happen with the, what you were working on before? Is that something in the works or? Well, it's, I mean, it basically turned into a sample. I mean, the whole thing with uh, working in television is it's like, you know, if you find the right person to adapt it, you're good. Personally, I am all about learning the ropes before I'm in charge of anything. So I actually was really happy that I got staffed and I didn't sell it as a television show because I really just wanted to learn about TV first. Like I knew Mm -hmm. before I did Fox sister as a web comic, I had been working in comics for Marvel. I had done some stuff for DC and I had worked for Aspen and CrossGen. So I felt comfortable enough with comics to do a web comic and print it and all of that. Like I knew the production, uh, like I knew everything about production when it came to comics. Um, I know, like, at the time that I broke into television, I knew so little about television that I just didn't, I wanted to be an employee for a while. So, like, I'm very happy on The Magicians. It's great. I'm learning a ton. They, you know, send us off to produce our episodes and stuff, and it's just, it's super, it's like I'm getting paid to go to grad school. It's amazing. Mm, I like it. Um, So my friend Nalini Stamp, who is a fellow activist like myself and also a big nerd about pop culture, um, (laughs) following questions to ask you about the show she said um, she loves the show because it is a diverse set of characters from the different backgrounds and identities uh, yeah. how do you manage the whole all of that fantasy with nuanced political storylines could you repeat the question sorry it was uh, breaking okay. up um, yeah sorry uh, it is a div- you have a diverse set of characters and backgrounds mm-hmm. and identities how do you manage to hold all of that in the realm of fantasy with nuanced political storylines? So for one thing on our show, we make it a very big point to, it's like what I did with generation X. We cast diversity because diversity exists in the world. We don't necessarily um, like we make a point to try to tell stories, including diverse characters, just because, you know, there are amazing actors out there that are people of color who are queer. Like we just do. And we don't want to necessarily make um, an overt agenda of your race or your sexuality. Like we just want to populate our show with characters, the real world. And then the other Mm -hmm. thing is internally in the writer's room, we have our own thoughts about politics and social activism. So like any other fantasy, like a lot of our show is about dealing with, you know, the like trauma that characters go through, understanding the world as it is, understanding your place in society and, you know, dealing with things that aren't fair and how BS certain things are. So all of that just comes out of us, you know, taking what we feel and putting it into story. Hopefully that is awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. And her follow-up question is sort of in the same vein, which was, um, if you had to compare current characters to our political situation, who would be whom? 
in what context? Um, that is hard for me to answer as I've not seen the show, but I guess with respect to um, with respect to uh, like I guess the, the, the characters' polit and and the politics of the world in which they exist in over there. Um, I guess yeah. I guess the big thing I'm asking is like, are we trying to compare characters to actual real people in the world? Because the big thing is like some of the characters are more like people in the room. It's not even intentional. Like, mm. I mean, I, like, I don't know if this is a secret, but like. Margot is very much John, and then Elliot reminds us all about Sarah. So like, there are certain characters that just kind of seem to be more certain writers. I wouldn't say that there are any, like, discussions about who, especially our main protagonists are, in comparison to political people. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think that, like, the politics just kind of naturally falls in, but it's not necessarily something we set out to tell. Like, we, like, I know you haven't seen the show, but, like, Julia goes through this really, I hate to bring up the spoiler, but, like, she goes through this really traumatic rape in the first season, and then the second season is her dealing with the immediate fallout of that, and then the third season, there's a lot about just how that trauma never goes away. So, like, without getting any spoilers, like, you know, it's just her arc has a lot more to do with the psychology of her character than it does her politics. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, for a lot of folks like myself who work in political spaces, like a lot of things, mm. a lot of things that we look for in, in enjoying science fiction and speculative fiction is like seeing these sort of uh, struggles that we engage in every day, kind of like writ large, happening on the screen, yeah. and, and sometimes we're able to have different kinds of endings to things than we have in real life. And sometimes we can, you know, get yeah. ideas and learn okay. from that as well. Okay. So here's, here's something that I can talk about because it's from season two. So, and I actually wrote this episode. Uh, I co-wrote this episode. So with Julia, like in terms of like storytelling and like politics and all that, um, maybe it's not super political, but like I did have a thought towards the, at the very, I hate to be spoiling stuff for you because you haven't seen it. But Julia is a character, you know, she confronts her rapist in the second season. And in the penultimate episode, she has this moment where she has this choice whether or not she's going to end him or let him go. And um, the thing we opted to do was to have her choose to not kill him. And a lot of that stems from there was a character um, called the Beast who was the antagonist in the previous season. You find out that he had been sexually abused as a child and, like, it ate him up. And for her, she chose mm. her humanity over revenge. And one of the things that was really big for me as a person writing it is like, I find that a lot of the times you see these stories where women are put in traumatic situations and they are raped into like gnarled, twisted characters who almost become cautionary tales. And I didn't want that for her. Like we as a room collectively, you know, like my bosses are the, you know, the voice of the show for me personally being put in a position where I had to write this thing, I was very happy that we had done it because it was nice to be able to write a character who wasn't defined solely by what had happened to her. And she was choosing to write her own story. Like she had a moment where she realized what she really wanted was to be the person that she was. And she knew she couldn't be that again, but the first step to like getting her humanity back was to not to turn into the monster that she knew she could be. So that for me was really nice because like, I think that like when you write, 
it's so easy to write rape stories where, you know, the fallout is, it destroys the woman and it's the only thing about that person. But the truth of the matter is horrible traumatic things happen to people every day. You're going to meet people who maybe not been raped, but other things have happened to them and they survive and they learn how to live with it. And, and for me, it's a lot more powerful that we're telling a story with Julia who realizes she doesn't have to be a victim. She can be a survivor and she chooses to survive. So what does that look like? So that would be, I guess my answer to that. So I hope I answered your friend's that's question. Perfect. Well, I, I think that's fascinating. I'm very happy with that answer personally. So, and, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, like, I, people know, like, they're listening to this because they're engaged in the show, you know, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worried about the spoiler piece of that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Uh, what's next for you in terms of stuff on the magicians? So um, my episode that I wrote this year, because, they were, they were really good to me. They let me take some maternity leave for season three. So I only wrote one episode this year. My episode is not this week, but next week. I'm episode 10, mm. um, Art of the Deal. It's a pretty dark episode. I can't say anything about it um, because anything is potentially a spoiler. But it is a bonkers episode. I was very lucky to get a chance to write it. And it was um, – I got to work with, I don't think this is like a huge thing. I got to work with Candace Kane, which was super, um, because I've been a fan of hers for years, uh, a really long time. Like I loved her in Dirty Sexy Money. And then there's another hmm. actor I got to work with that I didn't realize I was going to be a huge fan of until I worked with him. And I can't say anything because I don't think he's going to announce, but like I got to work with some really cool people in that episode. So yeah, it was awesome. And then, um, the room I uh, I will be writing for season four, and the room should be starting up for that at some point. I don't I don't know when. I don't know if I can talk about exactly when either. But yeah, the room should be starting up again soon. So yeah, that's what's next for me. Oh wow. Okay. Cool. Cool. And I hear you might have another comic in the works. Yeah. So I am currently. Uh, I have two comics that I am loosely kind of marinating on and talking to two different artists about. I'm not in a hurry to put anything out in the next year because uh, I wanted to, like last year was insane for me because I wrote a month, I wrote Generation X, I worked on a television show and I adopted a child and I like to need a break. Mm. So last year was so crazy that this year, the things that I'm focusing on are TV and I'm working on a a pilot for myself uh, that I really wanted to, to do. So those are taking precedent, but there are two things that I'm working on with two different artists slowly kind of building up ideas and marinating on thoughts. And um, hopefully I'll start writing those in the next uh, few months, but yeah, that's, that's what I got going on. That's exciting. I'm glad you're going to still be having a foot in the uh, comics world as a a writer. I genuinely love it. Yeah, no, it's it's actually kind of nice now that, like, TV pays my bills. Comics can be the thing that I do because I'm passionate about it. So I mm. am doing projects that I want to do, which is, um, it doesn't, it's not something where I'm, like, just taking things because I need to pay, you know, the rent. Luckily, I'm in a great position where, like, my TV job pays my rent. And this is just very much, like, I'm doing these comics for me. So they're all very exciting. Oh, that's great. I mean, yeah, like they're really different mediums, you know. Um, yeah. Do you ever think about doing a comic that you would also draw? You know, it's funny. I've got people have asked me that question a lot because now that I write and I color, the only thing I, I'm missing is the penciling. I don't want a pencil. Uh, that is a mm. whole different skill set. Like, I 
I look at stuff that I drew back when I was like, you know, 18, 19, before I gave up penciling. Um, and it wasn't bad, but I think that I would need a good seven or eight years of hardcore penciling to feel like my stuff is at the caliber of the stuff I color. Like, that's the thing that really killed my penciling. I got to start coloring incredible artists and everything I draw. I'm like, this is crap. Like, I don't want to color this. This is bad. <laughs> it's just not uh, good. Why don't I hire somebody who's good at this? <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, the sheer amount of work created required to, like, draw a comic just consistently, consistently yeah. floors me. <laughs> so... I understand that. I mean, but in terms of, like, your own work as a writer, like, what is it that you feel like comics can do that, that, that TV doesn't really allow, other than, I guess, have a limitless budget about certain special effects? A lot. There is so much. I mean, the limitless budget of special effects, like, you'd be amazed at how much of an advantage that is. Like, the sheer fact that I don't have to stare and ask myself what's the cheapest way to do something is a huge thing. Um, it saves a lot of brain power. But the other thing is just, it was the first medium I got comfortable in. Um, and it, it was weird because, like, it, it took me a little bit of shaking off cobwebs to get back into writing for Generation X because I had taken a few years off of writing comics since my web comics. But, like, it is a medium that, because I have an artistic background, I am more comfortable in at times than television. Because, like, I know still frame images. Like, I know, I know how I can mentally tell a story using still images better than I can with moving images, which is a weird thing to say since TV writing is my current uh, first position profession. But it's just something that when I, when I do it, I feel like I'm going home. So Mm. that is just a personal thing for me. The other thing is I think that like there is such an advantage to the number of people involved in comics versus the number of people involved in television it goes through so fewer hands that it's a much smoother collaboration, I think, because you're dealing with like when you're doing TV, it's just so many people you're talking to and you're it's so many people you're trying to convey your, your, you know, your story, your what's in your head to with comics. It's your penciler, your anchor, your colorist, you know, and you know, your editor. And, um, that's just so fewer hands to go through. <laughs> like there, it's a lot easier. And on top of that, there's an intimacy in a, in a group that small, like you get to know somebody really well, you develop a really quick shorthand in television because you're going through so many directors and there are so many writers involved. It's not quite the same. Um, in, in, in comics, it's, a, it's much more of a, like, I hate to say family dynamic because you don't necessarily want a family dynamic, but it's, it's that you are a smaller team. You feel like you're in the trenches together in a way that is much more intimate than television. And I like that a lot. I think the other thing is like, everybody feels like they have a bigger part to play because they do. That's really great. That's helpful. I appreciate that information. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Well, thank you for, yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate you joining the show. I just think you've been an, an outstanding, 
outstanding guest in terms of giving our Thank listeners you. the kinds of things that they like to hear. I'm 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 very happy about this episode. Um, oh, actually, I have one stupid question. It's not stupid, actually, at all. I have one little Nothing question I want to ask, question. and then we'll just wrap up, which is I definitely forgot to mention. So you had Terry Dodson doing covers for the series, yes. and he's like one of those cover artists who everybody knows and recognizes. Like, what is the process of co- working on covers? covers art with when you have an, a cover artist who's different than the interiors and who's someone who's like kind of a brand in and of themselves right so it's it's interesting because terry is really the only person that i had experience writing for marvel and dealing with covers with so and terry is a unique artist as you said so i don't know that working with him is as usual as other people i think the other thing that uh, matters is who your editor is because I had two editors in Generation X. The first, my first editor, my original editor, Daniel Ketchum, he would just send me Terry's covers. Like I had zero input in them, um, <laughs> which was totally fine because it's Terry. And yeah, I mean, I've colored Terry. He is a lovely. Like I, I know Terry from like having colored him years ago. He is a lovely individual. He and Rachel are fantastic. I love them so dearly. Um, but then when Darren uh, took over, it was a little different. I didn't have a ton of input, but Darren did ask me for more input than usual. And then on top of that, Terry also started re- reaching out to me early on to ask me my thoughts. And Terry just kind of bypassed the process. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but he was just awesome and just like sent me thumbs and like showed me stuff. And I was like, listen, you know, whatever the editors say, great. I'm just happy to see this stuff. It's amazing. So like, like having a rapport with Terry ahead of time was really nice because he, you know, he was able to send me stuff. And I mean, it's freaking Terry Dodson. I'm not going to tell Terry Dodson what to draw <laughs> because Terry Dodson knows what to draw. All he really wanted to know, which was really nice was what was I planning to do on the issue? And a few times I sent him outlines so he could see stuff. And yeah, like he was, he was so lovely. Like everybody I worked with on this book was lovely. <laughs> it was a great, book to work on it was fantastic and I was very pleased with what we did but yeah Terry no Terry was awesome like I wasn't going to tell him what to do (laughs) (laughs) and like I you know you're someone who's active on Tumblr and like I said the Tumblr fandom around this comic is really significant and actually how I really came to notice it like what is it how does it feel as a as a writer and artist sort of seeing your work kind of remixed in these different like fan edits and clips and like text posts from superheroes and that kind of stuff oh I love it Oh, I love it. I love it so dearly. Um, it makes me so happy. Here's the thing, like, I, just seeing that anybody is reading your stuff is exciting. Seeing that people want to spend the time to do, like, you know, text edits and, like, image edits, I'm just like, oh, you really do like the book. I'm so happy. <laughs> the fan community for Gen X has been so incredible. So, yeah, no, I love it. I love seeing it. Um, I love it, like, when people have their little, like, their responses and their thoughts on what characters should do. I'm just like, this is great. Because if you guys are having those sorts of thoughts, that means that, like, I did a decent job conveying who they are as people. So, this is great. Yeah, totally, totally. And I always really appreciate seeing creators who can interact really well with their fans. I think it's an important art. Speaking of interacting with fans, where can our listeners find your work online? So I your Twitter most, account and all that. Yes. I'm most easily reached on Twitter, uh, Christina Strain, just my name, no spaces or anything on Twitter. 
And then Tumblr, I'm just Christina Strain too, right? I haven't looked at my Tumblr address in a while, but like I'm on Tumblr. I'm not on Tumblr under that name as frequently as I am on Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot more, but yeah, because I have a, I also have a secret Twitter or a secret Tumblr account that's just for me and my my gross fandoms. And I say gross fandoms because I just get excited excited about things, and I'm like, ooh, get that, <laughs> reblog. So yeah, uh, that's where you can find me. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and for folks who may have joined us late or what have you, you will be able to listen to this whole show on our iTunes at Graphic Policy Radio, on our website, graphicpolicy.com, Twitter, Graphic Policy. We're very consistent in these ways. Um, this episode will be up on um, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher within the, uh, by the morning, I should say, and it'll permanently up on our website as well. I, myself, Ilana, um, on Twitter, all the goddamn time at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana Brooklyn. Um, I want to also shoot, shoot a thanks out to everyone who helped uh, with the Black Panther Fan Activist Con tweet chat last week. If you guys haven't seen it, uh, take a look over at hashtag Fan Activist Con, and you can see all kinds of uh, fan and activists um, talking about how the movie impacts the world around us and what kind of activism we're seeing inspired by it. Really great conversation. Again, that's hashtag Fan Activist Con. Com, I can't speak. C O M like a convention. Um, and uh, oh yes, and last but not least, um, tomorrow, uh, next week's episode we have a really great episode. The folks from Lion Forge who made the Puerto Rico Strong graphic novel, which is a fundraiser to support the rebuilding and of Puerto Rico uh, and hurricane relief in Puerto Rico, will be joining us on the show on Monday. And I cannot wait to hear more about that comic. Desiree Rodriguez will be joining us for that as well. She's a great guest, huge fan. And uh, Mario Lopez, who's the uh, creator of the series, of the creator of the series, the creator of the uh, graphic novel uh, anthology, will be joining us as well to talk about it then. And then the week after that, we have the creative team from The Wilds on the show. That's going to be on March 19th to talk about their new series for Black Mask, Vida Ayala, and crew. And then I think the week after that, we're going to be having a roundtable conversation about the new Mr. Miracle comic. So, yeah, there's lots of great shows coming up at Graphic Policy Radio. And we can't quit. We can't wait to keep hearing from you, messaging, and hearing more. So, um, for the show, graphic policy, uh, we just say keep it geeky. That's a great. That's that's great. It's true. Do it. Don't don't stop. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you.